We've all heard it said um, from people older than us that time goes fast. I had lunch with a gentleman just this last week who told me it's like it goes real, real fast. And I have to say, when I was younger, I, I heard those words and I knew those words, but I didn't believe those words. Uh, but now I recognize that it is, in fact, um, going really, really fast. Uh, Moses says in Psalm 90, he says that a thousand years goes by like a day for the Lord. So what is my life if a thousand years are a day for the Lord? Is it even the tick of a clock? Probably a lot less than that, and it's, and it's, it's, it's over. Like, I, I actually have a hard time believing that I have an almost 23-year-old son and a 20-year-old daughter who's finishing up her junior year this year. That's, wow, I just... I remember when she was born. I remember the day she was born. I was supposed to go to men's retreat. It was a Friday, August 27th, and I came out about 7 o'clock in the morning. And the reason I went to, was going to go on men's retreat and my wife was pregnant was because Allie came early. Anyway, that's backstory. But I came out, and there's my wife on the couch, and she's rocking back and forth with contractions. And, um, and I said, what's wrong? <laughs> that was a stupid question. But she said to me, she said, I just don't feel like you care. And it wasn't my finest hours as a husband. It really wasn't. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, well, needless to say, I didn't go to men's retreat. I took her to the hospital, and, and our daughter was born. And here I, I am now. She's in college, finishing her junior year. And some of you know, at Christmas time, she, she brought a, a boy home, a young man, I should say. This is interesting because now I understand the perspective of Steve Martin on Father of the Bride Part 1. You know, I will always see her just as my little girl, little tiny girl sitting on a chair telling me she brought a boy home. Now people have asked me, do you like him? And my standard answer is, yeah, I like what I know of him now. But I still need to have some friends at Fairfield PD run some deep background checks. <laughs> On him, his parents, his first and second cousins, you know. But more to the point, I, I just want to see him with some, under some pressure. I want to take him up a mountain or something and see what happens, you know. <laughs> is he going to be a pansy or is he going to, you know, is he going to... Does he have a tough inner core of fortitude? Like, I want to know if this works out. That if they ever run into an angry bear in the future that he's not going to be the first to run. And if they do run, he doesn't run faster than my daughter, if you know what I mean. All that to say, some, something we all know is that really what's on the inside comes out in times of crisis, pressure, tribulation, and affliction. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul speaks of a, a time in his life, a crisis in his life that probably was unparalleled. And in his description of it, we learn something about us, learn something about God, and we learn something about the need for community. Those are kind of the three parts that come out in this text, is that we discover something about us, something about him, and something about our need for community. Like I said, crisis tends to reveal things in us. It's, it's, it's revelatory. That is, you can think you're strong until you're put in a place of pressure or you're on the battlefield and realize you're not. That is, it's, it's revelatory, and we have a choice in those times to either deal with it, face it, and learn from it, and, and change. And, and really, that's the, the crises God brings into our life. 
are just that. They are, they are tremendous teaching or learning opportunities for us to discover who we are, who God is, and our need for other people. So with that said, let me just read the crisis. Paul writes, and this is part of his thanksgiving, because he's giving thanks to God for deliverance from this very, very painful trial. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, we last week read in chapter 11 a whole list of Paul's sufferings. But this must have been something that stood above them all. I mean, the three ways in which he describes this are severe and weighty. Like when he says that we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. is his way of saying we were completely, completely overwhelmed. We, we didn't have the strength and the stamina to deal with this at all. Overwhelmed beyond our physical and emotional strength. Outdone. Now, we don't know exactly what the, what the uh, trial was or s- situation. Some think it might have been the, the riot in Ephesus. I mean, Asia, when it says Asia, it's talking about Asia Minor or modern-day modern Turkey. And uh, Ephesus is one of the urban centers in that area. And Paul spent two years there teaching. And in Acts chapter 19, it says that because of the power of the gospel, that uh, the whole town uh, ended up in a riot um, against both Paul and his uh, other Christians. And if you read between the lines, it, must, it, was, it was probably deadly. Again, we don't know for sure, because he doesn't mention it in the text, but that's a possibility. But the bottom line is that he is completely and utterly overwhelmed by the crisis. Feels like he can't handle it. To the point where he says, we despaired of life itself, which is probably a way of saying that we, 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 didn't, we lost all hope of actually living through this. Thought you're going to die. Received a death sentence. So here he is, completely and utterly overwhelmed by a crisis. Now, most of us can't say that we have experienced this kind of weight, right? Feeling like you're going to die at any moment, wondering if this is going to be your last breath. But I think most of us can relate to the fact that there are times in which things are completely outside of our control, or to use the phrase, burden beyond strength, right? Different things, different strokes for different folks, different times, different places. It can be a very, very difficult child. You're just overwhelmed. This is beyond me. A rocky marriage. It's just beyond me. Situation at work. I can't fix it. We've been there. You remember 2008, 2009 when the bottom fell out of the market? A lot of us felt like there's no way. Is this beyond our control? How are we going to survive? How are we going to live? Where is the money going to come from? So I think we can all relate to that, the crisis. The question is, what are we going to do in the midst of it, right? You can either believe that the world around us is random, or you can believe God is sovereign. And I don't think you can, there's any in between. It's either one or the other. Now, Paul recognizes that this crisis was allowed or brought or ordained, however, whatever verb you want to use, the bottom line is God's sovereign over it, for a purpose. A purpose to teach him something, and through his life to teach us something. So here you have several lessons that come out of this crisis, this event where he's burdened beyond all strength and despaired of life and received a death sentence. 
First lesson we learn that God is doing through crisis in our lives, Paul's life, to expose and break us of self-reliance. To expose our own self-reliance and to break us of it. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but, now this is a purpose statement, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. This is a rather transparent acknowledgement on Paul's part, at least the implication is that at some level he was relying upon his own resources and strength. So God brought this crisis so that he wouldn't rely upon himself to to break him of whatever self-reliance is there. As I said last week, this is one of the most transparent letters I think that Paul has written. We get a, a peek into his heart. Like, we have a tendency to do of thinking all the biblical characters are somehow, you know, superhuman rather than just ordinary people like us sharing a a fragile humanity, which they do. He's saying this crisis brought, to the end of, brought us to the end of ourselves so that we wouldn't rely upon ourselves. But rather, and we'll look to the second half in a second, but that, 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 that's typically what we do in crisis, right? Is we, for, at first, like if it's a difficult child, I can do this. I can fix this. I can figure this out. I can read some books, and I can come to a solution. And none of those things are bad. I mean, the truth of the matter is God does give us resources, doesn't he? He gives us some level of physical strength. He gives us some level of financial resource. He gives us intellectual powers to try and figure things out. He does give us resources. The difficulty for us and the temptation for us is we, with these resources, easily begin to trust the resources rather than the resourcer. That is to trust in the gifts God gives us rather than the giver. So there is this shift of trust from God to us and our gifting and our resources. Forgetting the fact that everything you have, be that physical strength, financial resources, or powers of the intellect. All of those are given by God, sustained by God, and can be taken at any moment. The temptation is, like I said, to begin to trust the gifts rather than the giver, to trust what we can do with the gifts rather than the the source, God himself. It happened to Paul. It happens to us. So easily commit the sin of self-reliance. Which goes, you know, self-reliance in, in our world is a positive thing. In the Christian world, is, we're supposed to live with our life based on a different foundation. Not on conceit or pride, which is thinking you can do it in and of my own strength, with my own resources, with my own intellect. The passage that, that Kendall read reinforces this in chapter 12 later. Where he acknowledges that God brings a very painful thorn into his life. An antagonist. Something that causes pain, something that causes weakness. But he understands the reason for it, and it's a redemptive reason to teach him something or to keep him from becoming, as he says, conceited. 
So God brings this thorn. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was antagonistic and it was painful. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now that was the gift God gave him is these great revelations of who God is. But again, we can easily go from humbly acknowledging this is a gift to, wow, this must be because I'm, I'm that great that I got these revelations. Oh, because of the revelation, he says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A thorn was given me by who? By the Lord. A painful, weakening antagonist. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. When's the last time you saw somebody at work who just despised you like a, like a thorn in your saddle? You just wish they'd quit and leave. When's the last time you recognize, wow, God has them here for a purpose? <laughs> Do you see life that way? That God puts these things in our lives to keep us in a position where we're relying on him as opposed to ourselves? Well, that's the first lesson we learn is, is, is just God brings these things, these crises, these pains and afflictions into our life in various ways to teach us not to rely on ourselves. And he pushes us beyond our strength, beyond what we can fix, to learn that. But the flip side of that lesson is that he is working in the crisis or the event to help us rely upon God. When, there's, when you're at the end of your rope and you have nowhere else to go, and what's, what, do, what happens at the end of your rope? If there's nothing left, well, you, you, you fall. What do you do? Well, there's, for the Christian, there's one place to go, and that's the Lord in those moments. That is, crises teach us that he, that is God, is always reliable. That's the second half of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, a reliance upon God. Now, it's interesting that he says, a God who raises the dead. You ever stop and think about that? Why that phrase? Why not to, to rely upon God who is faithful, or to rely upon God who's sovereign, or to rely upon a God who is wise? Instead, he's to rely upon a God who raises the dead. It's as if he's describing a character quality of the Lord. Or at least a character quality as it relates to his people. God who raises the dead. One of the greatest displays of, of, of God's power in the Bible is to take a dead, rotting, decaying corpse. A dead, rotting, decaying corpse. And to reanimate new flesh. To resuscitate with new breath and to restore human personality and personhood. That is a miracle of miracles to raise the dead, and we all know that. How many funerals have we been to where someone's come back to life? None. Because we know it's impossible. But here he's described as God who raises the dead. The same kind of power that God uses to raise the dead is the same kind of power by which God called forth the universe and all of life into existence out of nothing. God who raises the dead. What does that mean? God who raises the dead. We could understand it if we put it in past tense. 
God who raised the dead, well, he did that in Jesus, and others came out of the tombs after his resurrection. We could understand if you put it in the past, God who raised the dead. We could understand the future, God who raises the dead or will raise the dead, I should say. Future, because that's what he promises. God promises at some point in the new creation, when the Lord comes, that he will reanimate new flesh, resuscitate new breath, and bring his dead to life in a non-zombie-ish sort of way, as incorruptible. So we understand it in the past or in the future, but he says the present. Who raises the dead as if this is the way God works all the time. I want to rely on the God who raises the dead as if this is a regular thing. What does it mean? Well, let me say that I don't think he means this to be taken strictly in a literal sense. Now, it's true God has raised the dead literally, and he will raise the dead literally. But I think he's speaking of life experience where God is in the process with his people of rescuing and delivering his people from deadly situations. The Psalms are full of language like like that, like you saved me from the depths of Sheol, you saved me from the grave, you saved me from death. And I think that interpretation is sustained or supported by the next verse. Because right after he talks about relying upon God who raises the dead, he speaks of deliverance. Past and future. He says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. That is, he's speaking of whatever happened in Asia. Like, he delivered us from death. Then he switches to the future. And he will deliver us. And I think he's speaking of the near future there. So he rescued us from death in the past, he's going to rescue us from death in the near future, and then he looks to the end of time, where we can take this literally. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Deliver, deliver, deliver. God who raises the dead is a God who delivers his people all the time. Now think about this for a second. We tend to think, maybe, maybe you think this way, maybe you don't. But we question sometimes, is the Lord going to deliver me out of this situation? Thinking, you know, maybe he delivers three out of ten times? 30% of the time? 50% of the time? I think we could argue based upon this verse, properly understood, God delivers 100% of the time. Maybe not in the way that you expect or want, but he delivers his people every time either by delivering you out of it or preserving you through it. Every time. Imagine if we went through life knowing every time, 100% of the time, the Lord is my deliverer. Not just three out of 10, all the time. Every crisis, he's there as your deliverer, as the one who raises the dead, exercising his power of deliverance in your life. And even at the final moments when when you breathe your last breath, Again, he's faithful to deliver your soul into the presence of Christ. And then someday, call your dead body to life and bring the two back together again. That's still a perfect track record. That's 100% deliverance all the time. You look back at your life, how many times you look back and you're like, well, God preserved me through that. He preserved me through that. Deliverance passed. Deliverance present, deliverance future. That's the kind of confidence we should have upon the Lord. Like, that's how reliable he is. 
He's not just reliable sometimes. If it's three out of ten, he's not reliable. He shows up every time. That's what, that's what he's telling us. So this crisis moment is, is teaching us not to rely upon self, which is a faulty foundation for life, but to rely 100% on the t- uh, of the time that God exercises power to deliver you in the crises of your life as you trust in him. We could probably take a microphone this morning and go around and ask you some of the difficult times in your life when you just felt like you couldn't get through and, and yet God showed up and you made it through, right? I bet we could. And I hope you tell those stories because it's proof, once again, that God is there 100% of the time, the God who raises the dead. Last, this last fall, I had an experience where, and this is nothing compared to Paul's death, right? Or maybe even some of you who have battled cancer, just doesn't compare. But God put me in a place where I felt like I was completely outside my emotional ability. Pastor friend of mine asked me to come out, consider to come out to, this is September, to come out to speak at his men's conference. And I prayed about it, and I I really didn't want to do it. Then I talked to my wife, who still loves me after August 27th and the birth of our baby. And she said, I think you should go. So the Lord is telling me to do it, even though I didn't want to, and she was confirming that that's what I should do. So I said yes. So this was the scenario. I was going to fly out on Thursday night, get there, and then I was going to speak at the men's conference on Friday night, and then twice on Saturday morning. That's three different messages. Now, I could preach the same message three times, and it would be exhausting, but I, I know I can do it. So Friday night, Saturday morning, again Saturday morning, get on a plane, fly back to Fairfield, and then speak Sunday morning here. Like, that's four different topics and subjects in my brain at the same time. But I thought, okay, I, I can do this. So I arrived, you know, landed at the airport. He picked me up, and he goes, I have everything planned out for you. I was thinking maybe I'd have some quiet time to kind of like, you know, just focus. I had no quiet time. I got there, and they had a dinner with some old college friend which went late into the night, woke up the next day and he goes, guess what, we have a golf tournament. Y'all love, know how much I love to golf because I'm so good at it. That's five hours out on the golf course, ended about two or three o'clock, and then there was this big, huge, massive barbecue. All these guys, barbecue that went up to the point where I had to speak. I'm like, there's no time. I'm like, I can't do this. Then that night, you know, there's constant interaction with these new people making conversation. Went to bed late, no time to myself, got up the next morning, at, it was 7, got there at 8, spoke at 8. Then there's this big, huge catered breakfast in between where you're making more conversation to speak again. I just have to say, that is so beyond what I can do. There are superstar preachers that can preach that and, and not even break a sweat. I am not one of them. Not by a mile. But you know what I kept thinking about when I realized he had planned my whole time, this is way outside my emotional tank. I just kept thinking about, because I've been meditating on this for a number of months, I just keep thinking about this theme that God like shows his power when we're at our weakest. Because there's no mistaking that it's his. Right? So just I kept thinking about, okay, Lord, you're going to have to do this because I don't have enough emotional energy to do this and make conversation with people. This is completely depleting to me. And I kept thinking about this, this passage connected to Paul's. 
where he says, and again, this is Jesus' response to his take away the thorn, take away the cause of my pain and crisis that, that, that weakens me. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you have just enough, perfectly enough, to deal with this. It's grace, it's not human reliance. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's conclusion then is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. There's nothing triumphalistic about this. This is how God works. Putting you in a place where you are weak. So that you'll know 100% that he's the one who carried you. He's the one who delivered you. He's the one that provided when you couldn't provide for yourself. Now, thankfully, he doesn't put us in these deep crises all the time. But make no mistake about it. God wins the war, not through acts of force and strength. God won the war through a man weakened to the point of giving up his breath on a cross. You know what happened as a, you know, in, in Ephesus, if the background is, is Acts chapter 19? It became the center of Christianity in Asia Minor for a couple hundred years. When he was at his weakest, God showed his power. And we have to retrain ourselves to think this way. Instead of thinking, I have to be strong in order for God to work, it's like, no, actually, he's going to teach you that you're a lot weaker than you think you are by putting you in situations where you're beyond utterly beyond or utterly burdened beyond our strength. What an amazing encouragement to us. It's know that God does this. He's like bringing things into our lives, no accidents, no random, so that we can learn not to be self-reliant, but God-reliant who exercises daily power, daily resurrection power to keep his people delivered with the hope that one day he will raise us physically from the dead. And then one final lesson is he, I think, already did know, but a reminder for us is the importance of community, people. Paul wasn't an isolated Rambo living and, and preaching by himself. So that is, these crises show us our need for a community, in particular, a community who prays. He says, you also must help us by prayer. You must help us. He's speaking now to the people, the believers, the church. He's like, you have to help. But he doesn't ask for a care package. He doesn't ask for a a small militia to come break him out of jail or wherever. No, he says, we want you to pray for us. Because the source of our power comes from God. Isn't it amazing how God has ordained that we participate in the strengthening of one another to call down grace? We highly underestimate the power of simply praying for somebody. And a community, and, and, and he, he has, he has uh, created and designed the church so that we are, in many ways, interdependent. So that we learn what it means to love, and to love in helping, and helping praying. A church should be a place where 
People share the truth with one another, the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, but also a church that's faithful to say, I'm having a tough time at work. I have to tell the truth to my boss, and I'm probably going to get fired, and I'm afraid. Will you pray that I have the courage to tell the truth regardless of the outcome? That's the kind of courage to ask for prayer and also the courage to just say, I will be praying for you. I will at 9 o'clock tomorrow when you have that conversation with your boss. I am going to be praying for you to have courage that you speak the truth. That's a, that's a vibrant community. is willing to be humble and ask for it and willing to be faithful and give it. Understanding that that's, that's how we help each other and that's how we help each other as we seek to serve the Lord. This coming year, we're all going to experience different crises. Some we can anticipate, others we can't. But to know in our hearts, God, you have this, it's purposeful, it's intended to teach me good. You know that song we sung? I, have, I don't have a problem with it, and I have a problem with it where it says, you know, you're never going to let me down, you're never going to let me down. From my own perspective, I've been let down a lot. From my perspective, because God didn't work like I wanted him to. But in the ultimate sense, in the crises that come this year, if you are a follower of Christ and you're relying upon him, he'll never let you down. He will be there. And to allow him to break you of your self-reliance, to develop a deeper root into his character as the powerful God who raises the dead, and also to learn the importance of being connected and praying for each other. Amen. Empower us, Lord. Encourage us. Humble us. Enable us to be transparent in appropriate levels with people. Connect us to you, to each other. Root us. Ground us. Set our feet not on the miry clay of human strength, but on the rock of who you are. In Jesus' name.